travel with me back to the past, back to the year of 1755 in the month of December to Rowan County, North Carolina. Travel with me to the footsteps of John Carr as he makes his way from his home to a local tavern along Beaver Dam Creek, just west of Salisbury. John Carr has his eye on a particular item for sale at Alexander Lawrence's tavern. It's a caster hat. The price? 30 shillings. A caster hat is a beaver skin hat, which was probably most likely imported from England, arriving to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then traveling down the various roads and pathways to reach its final destination at Lawrence Tavern in Rowan County. 30 shillings was approximately equivalent to three weeks of hard work by a hired hand. John Carr had the capability of purchasing four or five even more frontier hats, but he had his eye on this particular hat and he made his purchase. This source is so fascinating for several reasons. The Alexander Lawrence ledgers of 1749 through 1796 can be found at the Duke University located in Durham, North Carolina. You can also find portions of these ledgers at the North Carolina State Archives in Raleigh, North Carolina. But through the research of these particular ledgers, we are able to trace the footsteps of John Carr on this particular day in December of 1755 and find out that he actually purchased a hat and how much he paid for it. Now what he did with the hat afterwards, it may have been a gift because it was purchased just a few weeks prior to Christmas. So it may have been a gift for someone else or it may have been for himself personally. But nevertheless, we know that he purchased the hat. It's extraordinary to find that such luxurious items were made available in this particular area of North Carolina, which was located hundreds of miles from the nearest port. But yet here it is. Hi, my name is Carol, and I want to welcome each of you to Piedmont Trails. Today's show, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about colonial trade and how it affected the early settlers in Rowan County, North Carolina. I'm going to go into a little bit more specific discussion about retail, economy, and how these major factors came into play into early establishment, early settlements, small communities. I'll talk a little bit about tradesmen and craftsmen I'll name a few surnames and what their crafts were and how their roles were so important in establishing these early settlements. I'll go into detail also about items that were made available, what the prices were, and maybe guide you to other resources to use to maybe find your ancestors' footsteps and what they purchased on a particular day. 
So let's get started with today's show right after this break. Piedmont Trails? What is Piedmont Trails? <laughs> okay, I will share what Piedmont Trails is about. Piedmont Trails is a combination of history and genealogy. And it first started when I was a small child growing up in rural North Carolina. It contains various uh, stories from my grandparents and my great-grandmother and contains photographs, genealogy, history from all over the United States of America. It started out in North Carolina and it branched forward as my family tree grew. Um, it consists of over 30 years of research. My home has become a mini library and Piedmont Trails was born in September of 2017 so that I was able to share all of this information with all of you. Piedmont Trails is a fellowship of genealogy and history and it's my way of contributing to the future. And if you'd like to join me on my journey, I encourage you to do so. You can visit PiedmontTrails.com. Simply click on the subscribe to the website. Only thing is required is your email address. That way you stay up to date with the latest updates, new uh, articles, various research links and podcasts, YouTube videos, and much, much more. You can also find Piedmont Trails on most of your major social media sites as well. The most important thing about Piedmont Trails is sharing the past. And I'm so happy to be able to do that with each and every one of you. So thank you for the journey. Thank you for your support. And join me on my journey. But most of all, I wish you the best on your own journey to the past. Okay, let's get the show started today. I'm going to begin by listing uh, various surnames of the area and what they are known for. In other words, what their business um, nature was at that during this particular time period. But before I get started, let me bring all the listeners up to date. I do have my desk is completely covered, so you may hear paper rattling. I might hit my mic um, by accident. If you hear the microphone going over, um, I, it's just completely covered with books and, and manuscripts and maps and various licensed copies and, and all kinds of things going on here with my desk. I also have my two dogs with me today. Shelby and Spanky are laying right at my feet, so you may hear them get up and scurry about or or put in their two cents worth during the podcast. Um, all right, so let's get started. I'm going to begin by saying that during, between these uh, early years, prior to Rowan County becoming established and then the year right after the years, years following it, um, I have came across about 125 known taverns in this particular area. Okay, I'm saying from years 1747 through 17... 1760. I'll say 1760. Um, 
but you need to keep in mind if you're researching your family and you're trying to find the details about them as far as their business and and what they were into during those years not all residents um, obtained a license for operating a tavern some operated a tavern and didn't bother to to get a license and when you go into stores for instance like merchants versus taverns uh, there's really not a big difference between the two except for one uh, you know selling the spirits selling the liquor um, selling the alcohols that's your major differences but taverns offered commodities for sale just like the regular merchants and stores and stores were not required to obtain a license in order to operate a business so there's very little documentation and, and information out there about stores however if you dig deep enough I'll say that again if you dig deep enough you can find uh, information okay so let's get started with the um, I'm going to name off the tavern keepers that I have came across through years of research and these are just some of the knowns the ones that I have quite a bit of information on um, Peter Arndt and I'm going to spell these surnames for you guys because of my um, North Carolina accent and I just want to make sure that everyone is fully aware of what the surname was that I was intending to share uh, Peter Arndt A-R-N-D-T was a known tavern keeper John Lewis Beard B-E-A-R-D John Ludwig Marth Barth as B-A-R-T-H James Bowers and these are all taverns they owned taverns B-O-W-E-R-S Edward Hughes H-U-G-H-E-S and I tried my very best to get these in alphabetical order for you guys um, James Huggin H-U-G-G-E-N Alexander Lawrence L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E John Long L-O-N-G Hugh Montgomery M-O-N-T-G-O-M-E-R-Y and then William Montgomery and then there are many others too but these are the main main ones who held establishments for several years I'm going to go into um, merchants for the next surname listing okay bear with me I'm sorry for the silence okay William McConnell M-C-C-O-N-N-E-L-L merchant James McManus M-C-M-A-N-U-S John Mitchell M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L now I'm going to list uh, innkeepers. Innkeepers were the um, residents who allowed people to, they charged for commodities for them to stay overnight. It was an overnight stay. They provided them with at least one meal during their stay. Thomas Brashford, B-A-S-H-F-O-R-D. Archibald Craig, C-R-A-I-G. 
Edward Cusick, Keats, I'm sorry, C-U-S-I-C-K. Jacob Frank, F-R-A-N-C-K. Elizabeth Gillespie, G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E, one of the few women who was listed as a definite innkeeper. George McGone, and I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, it's M-A-G-O-U-N-E. And lastly is John Ryle, R-Y-L-E. Okay, now I'm going to go into a little more detail about goods. And when I say, what I mean by saying goods, I mean commodity items offered for sale in the frontier of North Carolina. How did they get there? Who was responsible for it? Who sold it? Who gained by it? Who lost by it? Etc. Um, during this time period, there are two main trading companies that are operating in this particular area during this time frame. The names of these two companies are Lyon and Fullerton and Satter White and Company. Okay? So Lyon and Fullerton, and I'll spell Lyon, it's L-Y-O-N. Lyon and Fullerton were located along the Cape Fear River. And these were, this was a major trading company that transported goods from the eastern portion of North Carolina and inward and inland, okay? The other was Satterwhite and Company, and they were located in Halifax County, Virginia. If you are more interested in these two trading companies, I highly suggest that you look in the trial dockets of Rowan County Court of Pleas and Quarter Sessions between the years of 1753 and 1763. Um, I also urge you to look at various different materials that are can be found at the North Carolina State Library in Raleigh. Um, I don't have my notes in front of me for exactly what the State Library holds, but I do know that they have a great deal of information pertaining to these two companies. Also, Lyon in Fullerton is identified in the records of the Moravians, which is an 11 volume set. Um, it was edited and written by Adelaide Fries. You can find in Volume 1 a great deal of information about Lyon and Fullerton Company and what their details were about. Um, yeah, so if you, like I said earlier, if you keep digging and keep researching, looking at various different um, organizations, libraries, uh, state archives and other means of research then you will find more information you may find even more information that I'm able to share with you today um, so yes these two companies were considered as the Amazon of the 18th century they were considered uh, at like amazon.com or they were they were like the Walmart of the day they consisted of all types of items they transported them and they offered them for sale by non-resident uh, merchants who were mainly concentrated on selling the product, making a profit, and 
is, is growing their business. That was their main objective. Now, all throughout this show, I'm going to keep referring back to Tavern. Going back to Tavern. There's a reason behind this. Um, during eight, the mid-18th century, a tavern was looked upon as a grocery store would be today. I would say 50% of the sales, probably over 50% of the sales from a tavern consisted of various other products outside of selling spirited drinks or selling of liquor, brandy, wine, beer, and such things of that nature. They also were known for selling goods such as leather products, um, various tools. They were known to sell flour and grain, um, sugar, salt, pepper, meats, um, nails, um, paper. They were known to sell flints, um, powder, shot. Uh, tobacco products. Um, they were also known to shell patent uh, medicines. So when you when you're researching kind of keep that in mind and when you see the word tavern or you you run across a document where maybe your ancestor visited a tavern don't let your mind go back oh my ancestor visited a tavern so he ordered it he ordered a spirited drink or he gathered at the tavern. They this was a social um, visit to maybe mingle with other neighbors of his um, area, and that's true. That all happened. But also keep in mind that the tavern may have been the closest place for him to get various tools and other things that he may have needed at for his home. So. I wanted to make sure I get that in there and why I keep referring to the tavern in a different way. So a tavern's looked at as a grocery store would be in today's time. It was a great advantage to have a tavern close by your home site during the mid-18th century. It really was. It provided so much more than, than just a building selling spirited uh, liquids or liquors. A prime example of this is, say for instance, a farmer um, grew an excess amount of grain one particular year. There is no way that he is going to use all this grain for his personal use. So he can take the surplus of his crop and travel to the nearest tavern and offer it for sale. The tavern owner may see the need of storing and supplying other residents with this surplus of grain. So it, it's essential on both ends of the bargaining tool here. The farmer can maybe settle an outstanding debt or he can trade the grain for other items that he is in need for such as tools and uh, you know various other things, leather, various other things, um, gunpowder, tobacco products, or uh, for drinks, wine, brandy, beer, so forth. Another example of this is um, a hunter who is out in the wilderness and his main objective of the day is gathering furs and skins. He can take these items and travel to a local tavern and, and offer them for sale or offer them in trade. So as you can quickly see, the tavern 
really transforms not only to a small grocery store in looking at it in today's perspective, but it also transforms to a financial center, sort of like a bank. Um, so, yeah, there, keep an open mind about the word and definition of tavern because it means a whole lot more in um, mid-18th century than what it would what it means today it, it, it really does you've probably heard me say this many times but news traveled quickly during the colonial period it really did um, and I'll give you a perfect example of this and what I'm going where I'm going with this is that taverns were strategically placed just like any other businesses such as a meal right or a meal um, a shoemaker or an innkeeper a doctor a merchant a wagon maker a miller a weaver a spinner a tailor a candle maker all of these occupations were strategically placed all throughout the Piedmont area of North Carolina. During the years just before the American Revolutionary War, taverns were a dime a dozen. It's one of my mom's favorite sayings, a dime a dozen. They were everywhere, everywhere. But during the 1750s and the latter part of the 1740s, they were strategically placed and in many cases, certain individuals would travel a great distance to reach a specific tavern. And I'm going to give you an example of this. Um, Cornelius Cook. Cornelius Cook lived on the Dan River. And he was about um, 75 miles from the Alexander Lawrence Tavern. And John Forster lived on the Broad River in northern South Carolina. But yet two of these, these two men, actually held accounts at the Lawrence Tavern. They, their names can be specifically placed in holding accounts and purchasing items from this particular tavern on a certain day. And it's amazing the distance that these two men traveled to get these particular items that they were seeking. When I say this, there I'm going to go further with this. There were certain taverns who had links and ties and communications with certain trading companies who had access to particular items. A tavern located along near the Dan River or the Bethabara establishment would have probably been the most likely closest source for Mr. Cornelius Cook. But instead he took it upon himself to travel all the way further into Beaver Dam Creek along near Salisbury to purchase something from Alexander Lawrence. It's amazing to see how word of mouth travels. Well, if you can't find it in Bethabara, if you'll go to Lawrence Tavern, he's got it there, and you can get that, that item there. So that's how this works. Okay, it's time for another list. 
Surname listing. This list is going to be comprised of several occupations. This is getting more into the tradesmen and craftsmanship in the Piedmont area during this particular time period. Um, I will list the surname first, um, or, the, or the whole name in most cases, and then I will list what they were known for their occupation to be. Alright, Jonas Adam, A-D-A-M, known as a potter. Henry Baker, B-A-K-E-R, was a known wagon maker. Samuel Baker was known as a miller. James Berry, B-E-R-R-Y, was a known candle maker. Bastian Boys, B-O-I-S-E, tailor. Jonathan Boone, B-O-O-N-E, spinner. Squire Boone, you all know him. He's Daniel Boone's father, B-O-O-N-E. He was a very well-known weaver. John Brally, B-R-A-L-Y, schoolmaster. James Braddon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N, Miller. John Braddon, B-R-A-D-O-N, Taylor. George Bruner, B-R-U-N-N-E-R, Gunsmith. John Bunting, B-U-N-T-I-N-G, Weaver. James Carson, C-A-R-S-O-N, Tanner. James Carter, C-A-R-T-E-Y. He was known as a millwright and a very well-known surveyor. Andrew Cathy, C-A-T-H-E-Y, shoemaker. George Cathy, miller. Andrew Cranston, C-R-A-N-S-T-O-N, doctor. Luke Dean, D-E-A-N-E, Luke Dean was known as several occupations. He um, was very well known as an Indian trader. He had a great many um, communications and negotiations with various trading companies all throughout the eastern seaboard. Um, he was also known as an innkeeper, a ferry operator, a gunsmith, a merchant, and a storekeeper. Michael Dixon. D-I-C-K-S-O-N, Weaver. Alexander Douglas, D-O-U-G-L-A-S, Stonemason. John Dunn, D-U-N-N, Attorney, Lawyer. Isaac Ferry, F-E-R-E-E, -E, and it's probably Ferry, but he was known as a ferry operator. Hugh Forster, F-O-R-S-T-E-R, Saddler. John Frohawk, F-R-O-H-O-C-K, Miller. James Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, Steeler. Henrik Gropp, G-R-O-B, Millwright. David Hall, H-A-L-L, Blacksmith. William Harrison, H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N, Attorney, Lawyer, and Innkeeper. Henry Hendry. H-E-N-D-R-Y, Schoolmaster. Henry Hora, H-O-R-A-H, Weaver. Robert Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N, Hatter. 
David Jones, J-O-N-E-S, Weaver. Francis Locke, L-O-C-K, Carpenter. Robert Lucky, L-U-C-K-I-E, Wheelwright. James Lynn, L-Y-N-N, interesting occupation. He was an architect. John Lynn, doctor. David McDowell, M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L, joiner. John McGuire, M-C-G-U-I-R-E, he was a known Indian trader. Henry McHenry, M-C-H-E-N-R-Y, Taylor. James Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, Taylor. William Morrison, M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N, Miller. John Newman Oglethorpe, O-G-L-E-T-H-O-R-P-E. He was a known surgeon. John Oliphant, O-L-I-P-H-A-N-T, Miller. John Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R, doctor. John Patton, P-A-T-T-O-N, blacksmith. Samuel Shin, S-H-I-N-N, Mason. William Slevin, S-L-E-V-E-N, Weaver. Robert Steele, S-T-E-E-L, Schoolmaster. John Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, was a cooper. John Thompson, another John Thompson, was known as a Presbyterian minister. John Barrell, B-E-R-R-E-L-L, attorney, lawyer, and tavern keeper. Richard Walton, W-A-L-T-O-N, Tanner. John Whitesides, W-H-I-T-E-S-I-D-E-S, Miller. William Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, Hatter. And Robert Woods, W-O-O-D-S, Carpenter. Any of the surnames that I have mentioned here on the show today and you would like more information about them these um, the names that I've mentioned are from my personal files and they are also um, in association from sources that I've gathered from the Carolina Cradle by Robert W. Ramsey so I hold quite a bit of information about these surnames and if you would like more um, information that I may have on hand please feel free to contact me. Um, many of these I do have copies of business transactions, um, portions of different ledgers um, that have been um, copied from visiting state archives and um, various other historical organizations and libraries and universities all throughout the years. And I would be happy to share the information of what I have. The main source for my surname listings come from my own personal notes. So, again, if you have any um, questions about the surnames that I read off to you, don't hesitate. Just get, let me know. During these years, there were known as many men who traveled from various different ports um, along the eastern seaboard where they would come into their hands of several different products that would be available for sale. 
they would travel down through the trading pass, Kings Highway, Carolina Road, Upper Road, Fall Line Road, Great Wagon Road, and they would enter into the Piedmont area of North Carolina, especially from the years of 1749 and 1752. There were so many of these men who were doing this. They would arrive on pack horses or they would bring wagons of merchandise to sell. And there were so many of them, especially during the year 1752, that it became an issue in order to tax these individuals for the business that they were conducting in North Carolina. It was that vast amount. A lot of the early tavern keepers and merchants and storekeepers would end up buying um, surplus from these individuals. And, but for the most part, the main majority of inventory was greatly dependent on the local residents of the area. And each tavern or store would also correspond and communicate with various other stores. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, at w one time in the ledger of 1751 for Pythabra, it states that the storekeeper, all he had on hand was vinegar, bread, salt, and flour, and barley for sale. Nothing else was available. And the Moravian settlement decided at that time that they would correspond with uh, Robert Paris and his tavern located along the Yakin River, and Alexander Lawrence and his tavern further south along near Salisbury and they would um, obtain to purchase a few items from, from both of these taverns in order to supply their own tavern at Pythabra. And this happened quite often. Each tavern keeper was fully aware of another tavern um, located maybe 20, 30, 50, 70, 100 miles away. They were all aware of one another. But they, for the most part, they greatly depended on the local residents to supply with their surplus of needs. In fact, um, it's mentioned many times about Alexander Lawrence's tavern. He was very well known for a particular brand of whiskey that was manufactured less than 10 miles from the Lawrence Tavern. And it was very well known and people, whenever they were in that vicinity, and I'm sure in some cases there were many um, there were many customers who were willing to travel a great deal, a uh, great distance in order to get this fine whiskey that you could uh, uh, purchase at the Lawrence Tavern. But that's just another prime example of word of mouth and how advertising and gossip and communications worked in the colonial period. Okay, so not only was advertising by word of mouth um, and other techniques used and needed for all of these various businesses, but it also greatly came down to communication skills from the owner to the customer. Um, if the owner was not a pleasant person, then it would be more than likely that their customers would not be very happy with their service. And like I stated earlier, word of mouth quickly travels. It was very well known 
for um, the settlements, the Moravian settlements in the Piedmont area. You couldn't, you, it was known that you were not allowed to bargain at any of the Moravian businesses. It was just not allowed. The Moravians simply did not allow it. They had a set price for a specific item and they instructed their storekeepers and their tavern keepers and all of the um, occupations in the Moravian settlements to settle on that one price and don't allow bidding or negotiations of any type. It was forbidden. It was, looked, it was frowned upon. Whereas other established business establishments out along the outskirts of the uh, frontier of North Carolina, they were able to uh, bargain and, you know, negotiate with their price and in their trade tactics. And they were able to broaden out their communication skills, which greatly enhanced their business as well. So there were several different key factors that come into play with each identity of these early businesses and they greatly impacted the settlement around them. Now each of the storekeepers and tavern keepers they had transportation costs involved too and what I mean by saying this is they corresponded with other companies mainly out of main ports. Alexander Lawrence was known to um, purchase items from Charleston and he would travel um, the goods up through South Carolina into the Piedmont area North Carolina so he had a cost factor in with these goods so when he was ready to price he would price accordingly he would price to overcome his initial cost for the product and then he would uh, add transportation cost as well so that he could recover but I want to stress here you would think that transportation cost would be huge during the colonial period for a couple of reasons because of the road conditions the time and length that it would take to get from one place to another and the time overall from getting leaving out from the port of Charleston then arriving into Rowan County to the tavern would be a huge amount that you would have to pay someone but in going through all of the records and the ledgers, it's ironic that I'm really finding all through the years that the actual transportation costs were not that bad. In fact, um, the Bethabra records, Moravian records, are very precise and they go into great detail on how much transportation costs were. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, in one particular case during 1761, they traveled to Charleston to pick up commodities and various other goods and the price for transportation ranged from 15 to 19 and a half shillings per hundred pounds. So that was average to about 13 to 17 pence per mile and that was per ton per mile. That's hardly any cost at all even compared into their time period. But the Moravians were very quick to note that they needed also to add and calculate the transportation costs onto the pricing of their goods when it was made available to the public. 
And I'll tell you, another key factor with this would be damaged goods. And oftentimes accidents would happen in transporting these items from ports to storekeepers and tavern keepers. And another thing to keep in mind is the drying, the disappearance of some products. For instance, sugar would dry out. So if you would leave from the port of Charleston with so much weight uh, or so much of amount of sugar, it would be a different amount upon it arriving to Bethabara and the Moravian settlements. So I'm sure that the storekeepers um, and tavern keepers kept this in mind and somehow probably adjusted their pricing to specific items. But as of yet, I find no proof or record of that, but it, it pretty much stands to reason that if they took in consideration to add for the transportation costs, they would also take in consideration of damaged goods and of goods being uh, dried out during the process of traveling. It, it would stand to reason that they would accommodate these prices. So, in going back to the beginning of the show, I hope that I was able to offer an explanation on how a caster hat arrived at a tavern located in Rowan County and during the year 1755 and how John Carr was able to purchase this particular hat for 30 shillings. Now I hope that I was able to offer you what the processes were in order to get the hat and where it transported from and the cost that it may have inquired in transporting it from say for Philadelphia down to Rowan County and I also hope that I have explained the process and the importance of the early taverns and the early stores and the other occupations as well. I may end up doing another show to finish out this series and include the wagon makers and gunsmiths and blacksmiths and the various other occupations that I mentioned today and how important they were during the colonial period as well. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can leave them um, in a written format at the end of the show. And I also provide um, a way where you can also leave me a voice message if you'd like. You can also contact me at PiedmontTrails.com and just hit the contact uh, page and enter in your message and just click submit. For Piedmont Trails, we have a uh, news and updates coming during the next few weeks for the month of June 2020. On June the 18th, we have a Great Wagon Road Project meeting and we are working diligently on the North Carolina segment of this project and we have also welcomed several new members to the project and if you are interested in joining our journey through the Great Wagon Road, you can leave a message here at the end of the show or you can contact me at PiedmontTrails.com. On June the 20th, we will have a new article coming out with our Genealogy Hashtag Off the Grid series. It's a fun article that will be traveling back in time through genealogy research and techniques and tac different tactics that were used to conduct that research. The name of the article will be Cemeteries, The Real Hunt. So I'm looking forward to that. 
and I will also have a new YouTube documentary coming up by the end of the month that will go into the Great Wagon Road. So if you hold an interest in this historic old roadbed, I urge you to join me for that documentary. I also have an article coming up about Rule Anderson Doss. He is one of my personal ancestors that I've done extensive research on, and I want to be able to share his story with others, so I hope to have that completed by month's end. Thank you all for joining me today. I greatly appreciate your support, and uh, I wish you all well during your journey through the past. As always, think outside of the box when you conduct your research, and you just never know what you might find next. But most of all, enjoy your journey to the past.